Looking for a great math program? CTC Math provides online video tutorials that make learning math easy and effective by using creative graphics and animation that are sure to grab and keep your child's attention. Here's a great testimonial from Lori. She said, one day, my 10-year-old was in tears over math. I tried my best to help, but ended up in tears as well. We prayed together, and that very night, I received an email offer from CTC Math. The following Monday, we reviewed the curriculum together. She was willing to give it a shot, and we have never looked back. Start your free trial today by visiting ctcmath.com. That's the letter C, the letter T, the letter C, math.com. Hey, podcast listeners. The topics are pouring in through our text messaging pod ring is what I'm calling you. You can join it. 833-947-3684. Text the word pod. And then just send us messages. We interact with you, answer your questions about products and classes, and take your suggestions so that we can have a great podcast show. Hey, podcast friends. Today, we have a treat. We are getting to have a conversation with Dr. Marnie Ginsberg, who is the founder of Reading Simplified. Dr. Ginsberg's mission is to support busy, overwhelmed teachers so that they can learn a research-based system of effective and efficient instruction that accelerates all students' reading achievement. Marnie's surprised at finding so many of the middle school students in her classroom reading well below their grade spurred a passion for finding and disseminating solutions. What followed included private tutoring, university research, the creation of an evidence-based reading program, and ultimately the development of her program called Reading Simplified. Marnie, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Julie and Melissa. (laughs) It's great to meet you. I wondered if you could just begin by talking a little bit about the difference between the science and the art of reading instruction. Mm. Well, we have learned so much about how the brain learns to read. There is a tremendous body of research. That's the science about how our brain learns to read. And despite our diversity, um, we almost all, if we were to become successful at reading, we need to go through the same pathways to become a good reader. And that's what the science tells us. It tells us that our written language is a code for sounds, and we learn to read by co-opting our language system. And one of the biggest insights in the science field is that we learn this code by hearing the individual sounds and words, which is called phonemic awareness. And it's not something you talk about a lot of times at cocktail parties, but it's a big deal in research because it's a heavy predictor of who's going to be a good reader early on. So this is just a little sampling of some of the things we know about how the brain learns to read. And as I said, it's it's a vast um, collection of studies from so many different people all over the world in multiple fields. Now, the art, however, is is going to be what each parent or teacher or tutor or um, or child does to successfully accomplish what they want to do in the context of learning to read. And that is um, something that is harder to pin down. It's harder to study with a clinical trial. And it's it's uh, involves observation of human nature, really detective work and figuring out what's working or what's not for this child in front of me. And so I try to marry the two, the science mm-hmm. and the art. Um, there is a movement to to draw att- the public's attention to the science of reading, and that is really important. And as I said, we know so much. But there are some still things we don't know. We can't pin down like this, you know, 
activity A is superior to B because of scientific scientific study 101. No, it doesn't, we don't have that level of specificity in science. So we still need to honor the wisdom of parents and teachers who know how to work with the child that's in front of them and that child's emotional, motivational, cognitive, behavioral, physical um, needs and strengths. When I was exploring your materials, I was fascinated to read about, there's a, a big debate about types of reading instruction. And it sounds like there's this model that has been in use for a long time that research is showing doesn't really work. Um, and so I was thinking during the COVID Zoom period, a lot of parents were finding out that their kids were um, having difficulty reading. They were not reading well. How is is that related to this dominant model of instruction? Do you mean the, the this discovery of parents? Is that related or? Well, or the, the parents the... discovering that their kids were having difficulty reading. Mm -hmm. um, is, is, it, is this a crisis? And I'm why afraid, is it? Yeah, I hate, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if we don't know that we're, what the issue is, then we don't know how to make change. So indeed, it is a crisis for us here in America and most English-speaking countries. 65%, over 65% of English fourth graders, American fourth graders rather, are not proficient in reading. Mm -hmm. And... It, the number is even far worse for those um, in different minority groups or low-income communities. So it it is it is so hard to believe if you haven't been following education that the, there would be a dominant mode of instruction that doesn't work for actually a majority of kids, and even those that it so-called works for, it's probably very inefficient. So we actually have known for about fifty years that. We learn to read by picking up on the sounds of the language, this phonemic awareness, and, and turning that information into to symbols that we blend together to read unfamiliar words. And this process, this hard work of decoding an unfamiliar code changes our brain. And, and then those words, they become units. They become things we recognize in the split second. And it's rather miraculous how it all happens. And... It's been um, debated between the so-called whole word or whole language approach or phonics approach, what, even in, uh, as far back as the 19th century. But for about for many decades, a whole word approach has been preferred, and it has morphed in the last 20 years to be called balanced literacy. And some of the time, phonics is actually taught in this in this worldview, but it's taught as the, um, you know, as something that needs to be relegated to last place. Wow. And the science tells us it should be numero uno. Yes. Mm. And so, yes, parents have been discovering this is a problem because mostly because of the pandemic and also because of some other things that have been happening. Um, a really influential journalist, Emily Hanford of APM Reports, has done a number of audio documentaries, including a recent six-part podcast, which I highly recommend checking out. It's called Sold a Story. And it tells this history. And how could this be? How could we have gotten into this spot? <laughs> it's like, and when you learn about it, it's like if our all of our me medical doctors were... Um, giving us orange juice when we had a fever. I mean, it's not quite that bad, but it's like, don't we know a little bit more than that now? Yeah, and I so actually I actually did listen to that entire podcast series. One of the things that stood out to me while I was learning about this was that homeschoolers generally do use phonics to teach reading. Right. And that's obviously the majority of my audience. And one of the things that I found really fascinating in listening to that series and also doing more research into this crisis was the feeling that somehow phonics instruction was tedious. And so because it was tedious, they were trying to find a way to circumvent maybe the hard work of tedium. But ironically, when I taught phonics to my kids, it didn't have that same level of sort of excruciating pain. So what I'm wondering is, 
Do you think that phonics got assigned a kind of pain point in the reading instruction that it didn't need to have, that we were missing? You know, I remember learning to read as a kid and I was instantly put in the good reading group and we got divided by level and we were stuck with kids who were similar to us. And I sort of shuddered to think of a whole group of kids who are told you're in the lowest reading group and you're not good at reading. And now we're going to work on reading. Like my level of motivation would have been terror. So I'm just curious to know, why do you think phonics instruction fell out of favor? And is it this idea that it's tedious and we're trying to entertain children? What is it? That is so well said. The The people that ha- are in that the balanced literacy community or previously whole language, they were very much concerned about bringing the joy of reading to every child and giving them access really early. And that is indeed a great goal. Um, And they were also reacting against a model that was maybe highly controlled with lots of rules and a slow start, Mm. maybe lots of worksheets, whole Mm. class, monotony, (laughs) things that aren't actually essential for teaching phonics, but may have been associated with that type of instruction. Got it. And so we can certainly give kids access to the code and how the code works, learn the phonics and tune into those sounds and the words, like I mentioned, in a playful and rapid way. We don't have to drag it out for years. That's one of the things that I've been working on at Reading Simplified and and before is how to really get the phonics information to kids quickly and in a pleasant, easygoing way so that they can quickly get into real books like Henry and Mudge or Frog and Toad or Messy Bessie. So can you tell us more about Reading Simplified? Well, it is an approach that is streamlined for the teacher or parent and also accelerating the student's reading achievement. So it is certainly in alignment with in alignment with the science of reading. And some of the things that we've discovered is that when you put the the when you draw students' attention to the sounds and words and connect it with phonics in the context of real words, like let's build the word map with little letter sound tiles. When you do that from the beginning, everything connected the code unlocks really quickly for kids. And that's one of the things that we do at Reading Simplified. Another thing that's in alignment with the science is we know that it's a code for sound. Well, a lot of phonics programs teach the phonics information organized by print or spelling, but Reading Simplified and other approaches that are similar to us, like a speech-to-print approach, would be more likely to organize the code by sound. So when you get to the sound O, we would teach all at once, that O can be O is in go, or O is in boat, or O is in slow, or O is in note, or O is in toe. And we'd have kids read those words. The, the special spellings for the O would be bolded or somehow drawn the attention to. And then they would sort them. And they would say the sounds as they do it. So when they write the word boat, they would say, B-O-T. Making that connection between the sounds that they hear in the word boat and those squiggles on the page. And this kind of schema or mental organizational framework helps kids have a hook for that information. And so it's not random and we can release it to them really quickly. In a typical reading simplified um, scenario, a kid would be exposed to the O sound and spend time on it for just a week. And reading O texts like Joe and Joan in the book with a boat of soap. Um, <laughs> and then the next week they would already go to the E sound, like the E and he and C and um, meet and these and men knee. And again, they would learn all those symbols and read them in real text. And so they would gather that phonics information rapidly. And then within a few weeks, a lot of kids are able to get into those early transitional texts, which are so rewarding. And then they really see the snowball of um, kind of geometric growth in their knowledge of how to read words and recognize word parts, 
which David Shear called the self-teaching theory. We know that kids need sufficient phonics, sufficient phonemic awareness, and sufficient decoding strategies. And then they actually teach themselves a lot on their own. You may have seen this with some successful readers that you've worked with, um, no, maybe you, even yourself, Julie. <laughs> well, no, honestly, that was going to be a part of my next comment. I still remember the joy when I watched my children learn the GHT without being instructed, right? They learned light and night and might, and there was no migot, <laughs> there was no ligot, <laughs> yeah, right? They actually yeah. applied their knowledge of the English language to what was visually apparent. It also reminded me of when I studied Arabic. I studied Arabic in college, and then I lived in Morocco for four years. And so when I was first learning to transcribe, I'm learning this brand new um, script, a whole different alphabet, and it went from right to left instead of left to right. There were no upper and lower case. There were only little marks for vowel sounds that were above or below the words. So this was a very different system. And I remember, and here I was, an adult with fluent reading skills in English. I remember the teacher writing a word on the wall, on, on the board, and then pronouncing it. And there was a letter in there that you didn't pronounce. So it was a silent letter. Now, just remember, I spoke French fluently and English fluently at this point. Two languages filled with silent letters. And I raised my hand and I said, why would they include a letter that you don't <laughs> pronounce in that word? Raise my hand. The whole class paused, then everyone broke into laughter, and the moment they started laughing, I got it. And I just wanted <laughs> to point that out because we expect a lot of our children. We think, okay, I've told you that some letters don't get pronounced. Why are you pronouncing it? Or why are you stuck? We've done this 10 times. Mm -hmm. When really, part of what you're talking about is a brain training, isn't it? Yes. It's being able to make some guesses and judgments. This is where I really want to go with this question about this, you know, sold a story, because I think part of what they were trying to address is how phonics can feel nonsensical to a small child at times. Right. They learn the rule, they go to apply it, and it doesn't create a word. Right. I had a daughter who struggled with it until she was nine. Mm -hmm. And when she made the transition, it was super powerful. But those years were hard. Because mm -hmm. those obstacles kept resurfacing. Mm -hmm. Which is one reason it's so important to have a system that you reveal the code to your child gradually. And then, and then the question is, how gradual? Here at Reading Simplified, we try to release it as rapidly as po possible so that the child is challenged every time she encounters text and the parent is there to give her support. But we don't push her to the point of, frustration or tears. <laughs> and so if you start with short vowels and consonants, and we like to include consonant digraphs early on too, because it reveals this concept that one sound could be more than one letter. Yes. Like CH, that's a digraph. CH is ch or CK is k. That's two letters, one sound. That's not how we start out if we start out with just sat and cat and man. So right. we can actually give them earlier access to the concept of how our code works through that kind of environment, consonants, short vowels, consonant digraphs, and the code is fairly reliable. Those short vowels in a single syllable word, cat and hit and hop and um, pat, they are, are reliable most of the time. Or if we add in the consonant digraphs, shop and ship and yeah, chick. And so once the child gets the hang of that world, She's got that that shares concepts, the phonemic awareness. She can hear the sounds. So when she hears the word chick, she can figure out that it's chick. So she can then zero in on the what, what the CH is and what the I is and what the CK is. She's got that. She's got her phonics knowledge under development. And more importantly, she's getting a sound-based decoding approach to how to attack those words. She's not going to look at C-H-I-C-K and just notice the CH and look at the picture and figure out that right. it's chicken. Got She's it. actually going to put those sounds together. Chick, learn how to blend them. That's good. And she's that would be the basis of a sound-based decoding strategy. Once that's in motion, then we can start throwing some other curveballs at them. And again, we still kind of do it, but in a protected environment. So I would pretty quickly move into the O sound, like I just mentioned, and show them how to read the word go and boat and show and 
and snow and home and toe. And they would sort by those spellings and they would read words like that. But we're not immediately throwing the curveball of O-W can be O and L. So then that comes a couple of weeks later. So there are, you know, if you have a good um, program for decoding, it will move from the simple to more complex. And our experience at Reading Simplified is that the more rapidly that we release that code knowledge, the more success the child will have. And this comes into the science about how the brain learns to read. It's a statistical accomplishment. We see patterns. Our brain observes patterns that they that, that appear over and over again. And then we subconsciously notice some things like that, 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 uh, C-A-T, that that A there is probably going to say ah as opposed to A. We may not have conscious awareness of it, but we've picked it up. Oh, but we can't pick it up if we haven't seen lots of examples. Hmm. And so we need to see so more, more examples of real words. And some words are a lot more important than others because um, only 300 words make up about 65% of written English. And so is that those right? are the words that... Wow. Yeah. Those are the words you need to be able to read Little Bear and Frog and Toad. You cannot read them. There's just the words said and may and there and here and is. They're just, and so those not only do you need to see and see the patterns, but you need to see have the phonics information, which isn't just short vowels. Right. I loved watching videos of you working with students. And um, I think it was the Switch It game mm-hmm. um, that you have. And so they had the little letter tiles and you were coaching them through and it would be like lash and then lush and then flash and then flush and watching the the discovery happen and the playfulness of it all. Mm-hmm. And then you were even suggesting sometimes it's like incorporate nonsense words. Like what happens if we put an I in there and now it's flish. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like that to me really resonated mm-hmm. with what it was like to teach my kids to read as a homeschooling mom and keeping that, that playfulness and the, the, the game, the fun of it front and center. And I really like how you how you perceive that because it's also an activity that is very explicit where the teacher's controlling the phonics knowledge she wants the child to have and the and the phonemic awareness development she wants a child to have. Like it's harder, it's hard to go from cash to clash because when you add that second consonant at the, at the beginning of the word, it's hard for a young child to pick up, just like it's hard for a young child to say spaghetti. Those consonant clusters are not only hard for speech production for preschool, they're also hard for reading uh, absorption or learning. Um, so it's actually, it's controlled and yet it's playful. And that is kind of the trick of good early uh, instruction for any age, right? Um, or of any content area. <laughs> I assume if you're listening today, you're very interested in teaching your children how to read. So I just want to start by saying, grab your picture books and your pencils and join us for an adventure in early literacy with our brand new revolutionary product called The Quill. The Quill puts joy at the center of reading, writing, and math for your youngest learners. I would recommend this product for any child between the ages of like two and seven years old. It is a year-long program that is delivered in 10 month-long lesson plans released one month at a time. And of course, we're in February, so August through February are already released. Each handbook explores essential reading, handwriting, and mathematics skills through a theme like wordless picture books, riddles and jokes, art, wild animals, transportation, like, you know, buses, planes, and trains, cooking, poetry, and so much more. You will lay a foundation in reading, writing, and math with these kids, and they will learn literacy of all kinds, identifying letters and punctuation, differentiating between upper and lowercase alphabets in various fonts, interpreting symbols and images applying mathematical concepts to numbers, proportion, scale, measurement, and shapes. They'll be given the opportunity to decipher illustrations, understand emotions and body language, practice handwriting and pencil management, 
as well as developing a rich vocabulary in specific language domains. Plus, we include oodles of games and activities and opportunities to explore literary devices. The Quill is not a phonics, handwriting, or arithmetic program. Rather, it is a pre-literacy program that makes learning to read, handwrite, and apply mathematical concepts easier. In fact, just a little side note, this is the product I wish I had had when I was raising young children. A lot of you come to me and say, hey, I wish I could start homeschooling now, or I don't know how to get started. The quill is where you begin, and it is all delight and play-based, so your children won't feel like they're sitting at a desk doing school, but they will be deeply engaged in the activities and the discovery that is meant to happen at these ages and stages of life. If you're interested to learn more about the quill, go to bravewriter.com slash quill, and you will be taken to that page. You can either order the 10-month complete year program or each of the months can be bought a la carte. I look forward to you enjoying this fabulous new product that is getting rave reviews from our biggest fans and discovering that you can lay a great foundation for learning to read, write, and do math right now. One of the interesting experiences I had, I had five kids and my middle child had a speech delay. And so when he was six years old, we took him to the local public school for speech therapy. And as it turned out, that's what taught him to read. The, the speech therapist was so busy showing him how his mouth makes sounds, how to hold the shape of his mouth. And she would be pointing to the alphabet or the word to coach him into speaking correctly. And that correlation was so strong, he read much faster than my other kids. And I really uh, uh, attribute it to that strong correlation. The other challenge that I experienced with my kids, and I wondered if you'd ever seen this before, one of my children, one of my daughters, actually had a hard time differentiating different fonts, but we didn't know it. So she could read a book in one font, then we would go get another book, and it was like she was reading a completely different language, didn't recognize the A, didn't recognize the R. And it took us, actually, me just sort of unpacking how visually discriminating she was in every way. Like it took her longer to call a rocking chair, an armchair, and a desk chair a chair. Like there was just this level of specificity. She was a really good artist. And once we noticed that, I started helping her like highlight all the A's on three different photocopied sheets of paper with different fonts. And once she caught that, then she read have you ever seen that before or anything like it? I actually like it? haven't. It's not that common. And when you look at the literature of different reading challenges, the most common one is more is more like the child that you mentioned with a speech production. Even if there's not a speech production problem, usually there's a perception. There's tr it's tricky for certain children to perceive those sounds. So then when you're saying cat, 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 can't you, can't you... Don't you get it? No, they don't actually get it because they see squiggle, squiggle, squiggle. Maybe they see k, a, t, but they don't know how to put them together and they're not thinking of a, 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 cre a meaningful word like a feline creature. And so this is... Um, this is one of the messages that I often have to the homeschool community because, as you mentioned, phonics has been around forever and they never, you know, and mass, they haven't been, they haven't dropped it. But, but a lot of traditional phonics did not have this understanding about phonemic awareness, which is that key that unlocks the ability to crack the code. It's our code is not just symbols, it is a sound symbol code. And so if you don't, quickly process that flash is full ash, then it's hard to see those F-L-A-S-H and, and make all those connections, those sound symbol correspondences, uh, phoneme grapheme relationships. It's hard to do that rapidly enough to be able to, to decode a word. And so and many of those kids who um, were in a phonics curriculum that didn't help them tune into sounds, it may have seemed as if phonics wasn't quote-unquote working for them, 
So it's really important to discover this from this, the discovery of more recent research. That, yeah, we need to give them the information that H is ha and CH is sh and OA is O. That's the phonics information, but that's just part of what it takes to become a good decoder, which is the first step to becoming a good word reader, which is the steps on the way to fluency and good comprehension. And so more and more modern programs do fold that in. And the ones that do it the best are the ones that just integrate it from the get-go. And you don't have to do a separate lesson hearing sounds orally and a separate lesson looking at letter sound cards, F and G and OA. And you can just put it all together. Like you were saying, Melissa, with a, when you, kids have letter sound tiles, you have the word cash. Let's change it to gash. And um, moving on and on through different words that's going to tune them into how sounds and symbols work. And that is one of our most powerful activities. Just it saves kids a lot of trouble, and especially if they have been either in that balanced literacy environment where they haven't been really told to focus first on print, or if they're in a phonics, strictly phonics program that's very traditional that is not putting the pieces together explicitly for them. Of course, some kids pick up no matter what you do. <laughs> You know, it's just like any skill. Um, there's people with natural talent for, you know, I've had seen two-year-olds that can sing on on key and some five and six-year-olds that are still working on happy birthday, you know, and that it's kind of the same with reading. There's some that are going to have natural aptitude to perceive the individual sounds and language and be good at um, language in general. And then cracking the code becomes easy for them. And it may not be that their instruction was all that, spot on. It was just that they had uh, the necessary cognitive equipment to to take off rapidly. This is so interesting to me because it, it seems like when, when my kids were little and I was looking at reading instruction material that was out there, even if it was phonics, it was really embedded with spelling rules. Right. And it seemed like it would get hung up on spelling rules. And I think that's what you're talking about with that that derails kids a little bit. I remember a friend had a had a child who was actually starting to read. Like she was she was able to read some beginning reader stuff already. Um, and the mom felt like she needed to start a reading program. So she started one that was a very popular program at the time. And she was like, she was like writing, she was actually writing and spelling things correctly. And now she's spelling things wrong. Like thanks. Mm -hmm. She's putting a G in there. Um, because she's sounding it out and hearing different sounds. And it, oh. it totally derailed her experience. Um, and for me, looking at all of that stuff, it just seemed like it was bundling too much together. So I didn't, I didn't really use any of it. Um, but, but the method that you're talking about with this sort of sound focus, like the Bob books. We Do you, do you know those? The Bob mm -hmm. books like were mainstays for us. And I think they keep it kind of rooted in what you're talking about with seeing that sound used in a lot of words rapidly. Like it, it really did help them crack that code. Mm -hmm. And I, I, this is actually a debate that's going on. I mean, in reading, there are, there are lots of debates. <laughs> and so we started with one, but this is another one. And in on reading in reading simplified, we fall on the side where most of those rules and um, for instance, some people teach syllable types. Those aren't essential for learning how to crack the code and learn to read. Um, as a child is becoming a better and better reader, they may be helpful for spelling, like I before E except after C, but that's a spelling tip. And I don't need to write the word piece, like a piece of pie, until I'm pretty far along in my <laughs> journey as a reader. And this, again, goes along with what we know from the science about how the brain learns to read. It actually, we think we're, many of us, if we've learned rules, we think we're applying a rule. It's either A or B, short vowel, long vowel, closed syllable, open syllable. These are things that people talk about. But actually, our brain is much more likely to be applying a tendency. It's um, and based on a pattern of statistical observation. It's not dichotomous one or the other. It is a continuum. Like the word hat is nice and easy to decode, but is have is that irregular? Well, because VE is often what you see at the end of words. So it's actually not that irregular, even though you might expect it to behave like like cave. 
But so that's just a little bit less common than cat, but it's, but it's still not actually wrong. And it's, and then you get to something like the word I, as in to see with your eye, that's highly irregular. And so that's further down that continuum. And so it's a statistical that we learn through the statistical observations of patterns. And if we can do it in the context of reading with ideally feedback, that's what we think is so powerful. Uh, reading simplified when the te- when the child reads and she reads the word boat as boot. Well, you point to the OA, what else could this be? Or try O. And mm. that little bit of feedback is what helps her to not only attack that word, but get a little bit stronger with her her, her sub-skills that are going to enable her to read many more words. Like it's a generative thing that she's just encountering with that word boat. It's not just to help her with the word boat. It's to help her with um, any word that has OA in it. And so if you try to give kids access quickly and you give them this playful attitude, we're going to try this sound. If it doesn't work, we'll try another. Then it frees us from a lot of rules. At the same time, spelling, it gets messy because it's not an easy answer because spelling is actually a very prime tool to help you learn to read. And in fact, we um, start with basically a spelling activity. I want you to help me build the word map. Mm. So mm. They, they're they not writing it necessarily yet if they're really beginners, but they're just pulling down letter sound tiles. Well, that's a spelling activity. Mm, that's app. right. You're not, mis- I mean, we, we lead with sounds. Later on, you could do MAP, but Montessori did that over a hundred years ago as a way of starting kids' access to code through spelling. So it's an access to figuring out how the code works. But it's still important to remember your first most important goal is to teach the kid to read. Spelling can support, the activity of spelling can support that goal, but don't put the cart before the horse. All of us have our reading ability, almost all of us, except for some particularly unusual circumstances. All of our reading outpaces our spelling. That's right. I still don't remember how to spell the word recommendation. That's how I am with accommodate. (laughs) Is it two M's? Is it two C's? (laughs) I don't know. But I've been reading that word for 30, 40 years. Correct. Because it's the same as the difference between being able to understand another language and speak it. One is a production. The other is decoding or receiving and making judgments. It's already provided to you. Um, I, while you were talking about the word boat, the little uh, rhyme that popped into my head from third grade was when two vowels go walking, the first one does the talking. Very popular. Yes. But that's a phonics-based instruction, isn't it? It's asking you to pay attention to this practice or this habit in the English language when you have two letters together. I'm wondering if what we've lost is some level of a blend because I know that whole language in the 70s, I was raised in the 60s and 70s. So as it sort of came into vogue in the 80s, end of the 70s, there was really this emphasis on wanting people to love reading. Mm-hmm. And so you could get people to decode, but they didn't want to read anything, right? They found it laborious or tiring or tedious. Yeah. There seems to be, um, and and we also know uh, from research and also experience that when we don't know a word, we do crowdsource the words around it to try and help us define it. We use our critical thinking skills. Most print that we read doesn't have visual support. So I've never thought it was a good idea to tell a child, well, look at the picture on the page because you're not going to have that support in most cases. But there is a sort of critical thinking aspect that's going on there. If we want people to love reading while they're going through this phonics experience, what are your top tips? I know in homeschooling, we read aloud to kids. Yeah, we read that's, picture that's books. That's a winner. Yeah. Um, keep reading aloud. Read aloud to them until you, you're your horse. You know, no matter how old they are, it's always beneficial. Um, so powerful. Read aloud to them many times at text above their age level. A rule of thumb is like two years above their age level is what most kids can handle. So don't be afraid of those harder texts as long as you think the content is appropriate. So that's number one. Number two is uh, quick access. When you are successful at something, you like it. And so that is how we've designed Reading Simplified. Another tip that we have is to move quickly between activities. 
And again, to get to back to maybe number two is like rereading helps when the child rereads, that really helps them gain automaticity of the words that they didn't know immediately earlier. So that is like a cycle that we implement. So like Monday, we're going to read a passage called Joe and Joan. It's going to help us learn the O sound. And the child works hard at it. It's pretty challenging. And then the parent reads back the text while the child reads along. And maybe maybe once, maybe twice. And then the child tries it again herself uh, the fourth time, the fifth time. Maybe goes and reads it in her room or to a younger sibling. Tomorrow, she's going to come back and read Joe and Joan pretty well. And a lot of those words, like both and snow, maybe something she recognizes in a split second. And then the next day, she's going to read um, a snowy day, more O sound words, and go through that same cycle. That rereading of a new text builds the opportunity for more phonics knowledge to stick and high-frequency words to stick. And all of that just enables, again, the child to feel successful, get into the book's he wants to read those cool early chapter books or those graphic novels or whatever it is that lights them up because they have access, access to the phonics information, a, a sound-based decoding skill, and then access to high-frequency words that make the text feasible for them to attack. You know, rereading is my favorite strategy for growing writers as well. And if you become comfortable with rereading and rereading your own work, what starts to happen is you develop your ear for high quality language. And so it not only supports reading, but for those listening, knowing we're brave writer, it also supports writing. And one of the big jokes with my editors is that I am just a chronic rereader. I reread all of my work out loud. Uh, because that's when I can actually hear whether or not what I'm writing connects, if it's eloquent, if it matches my goals. And so developing that habit early in service of both reading and writing is really valuable. Uh, I agree. And I, ha- I have to read aloud too. Otherwise, I just gloss over and my brain thinks the word is there that's not really there. <laughs> that's all true. In fact, when you were saying that about the sort of stages of mastery that start with first being introduced and then practicing where you read along while your mother is reading and then you try reading to a child reminds me of how we do copy work. Um, We copy a passage, then we do what we call French style dictation. The French have a practice where they show the same passage, but they leave blanks for certain words. And so you listen along and just fill in those blanks And then at the end of the week, they do full dictation, where the child is listening to the whole passage and writing it down. And by the third or fourth pass, that familiarity, that practice really creates the momentum they need for accuracy. So I think there's a real meta message here about the power of repetition and the feeling of mastery that comes from practice, not always thinking that everything you do has to be brand new to stay interesting. Mastery itself is its own reward. Mm -hmm. Especially for the young kids. Just, you know, I think about the two or three-year-old that wants you to read Goodnight Moon for the 439th time, and you really don't want to do it. But it's the same for a five-year-old or six-year-old rereading a passage that they have learned. It is exciting. Maybe they won't hit 400, but they can get to seven, eight, nine and not be bothered. And don't think of it as wasteful. Yes. Exactly. Right. I think this is a question that comes up for parents a lot. I hear from homeschooling moms who are concerned because their kids just want to read the same things over and over. And I'm like, great, that's fantastic. (laughs) Actually, they're learning about story structure. They're picking up different things on each pass. So their reading is getting more fluent. They're learning about story structure. The same thing happens, and you really spoke to this with um, the idea of reading above a kid's um, own reading comprehension. So when picture books, picture books are written at an adult reading level, they're intended for an adult to read to a child. And you'll have parents who are who are worried like, oh, my kid should be reading third grade books and only wants to read picture books. And well, no, like that's actually way above <laughs> their, re- their third grade reading level. Um, yeah, there's a famous um, article by Cunningham and Sanovich. If you Google what reading does for the mind, you'll find a chart in there of 
of the difficult of the rarity of words and they compare this one of the in a study that's cited in this article they compared um college adult um educated speech just an ordinary daily dialogue how rare the words were that what that that they used in that conversation and compared that to like a children's book, like a picture book. Well, there's a lot more rare words in the picture book than there is in, you know, even how we're talking right now. And certainly when we're talking at home about going to the grocery store, or did you do your homework? So we shouldn't be afraid of those picture books. I've used them in middle school when I was a middle school teacher because they could teach a concept. They could teach, there's so much that they could teach. Um, so yeah, it's a rich opportunity. Yeah, I always think them. about Beatrix Potter with words like perambulate. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they're incredibly difficult to write. I was a part of a picture group, picture book writers organization way back in the 90s. And the big misconception is that picture books would be easy to write because they are for small children and they're short. But it's exactly the opposite of that. To craft a really effective picture book takes a high level of skill. Uh, it's related to the brevity and the need to capture the attention of children and still have a meaningful message that isn't didactic or lecturing <laughs> or moralizing, sure. right? I yeah. write I write early readers, right? Yes. And the what the publisher expects from me with an with an early reader manuscript, like there can only be so many words that are more than one or two syllables. There needs to be dialogue. There needs to be interesting characters. There needs to be a compelling plot, uh, but but also a very limited vocabulary. All in about so. two or three hundred words. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it's a tall order. It is. So, Marnie, what is one piece of advice that you? always want parents to have? Like if you just, is there something we didn't get to that you think, gosh, I always want parents to know this about teaching their kids to read? What would it be? I think that given that your audience probably knows about phonics, and if they're already trying to get guide their child through that, to make sure that they're aware of the, the idea of phonemic awareness, that that's that the ability to perceive the individual sounds and words. And that's what helps unlock the code. And so how do we bring the phonemic awareness and the phonics together? And it, an activity like Switch It, which Melissa brought up, does it just very playfully and rapidly. Can you just, for me, tell me what is a definition of phonics and what is phonemic awareness? Like those two right. words are very familiar to right. you, right? But I have a feeling that I have people saying, I don't know what the difference is. Yeah. Yeah. Phonics has two meanings. I like to use the one that means the sound symbol relationships of those squiggles on the page, certain spellings. Okay. So I-G-H in the light is the sound I, and C-H in chick is the sound ch, and the I in, or is the I in chick. So that's phonics knowledge. It's okay. information. Another definition of phonics is just any approach to teaching how to decode that emphasizes this phonics knowledge. So that's kind of where we get into tricky waters because it has dual meanings. And traditional phonics approaches, the teaching of decoding, emphasize a print viewpoint on language, on written language, without the wow. emphasis on phonemic awareness, which is the perception of individual sounds and words. Phonemic awareness, the root of that, the first word is the phoneme the individual sound. In the word phone, there are three phones, <laughs> phonemes, O-N, three yeah. phonemes in the word phone, even okay. though there's several letters. The Got phonics it. information is that it's P-H-O-O-E, that is O separated E, and then N. That's the phonics information, but the phonemic awareness tunes you into the fact that it's O-N. So those are obviously... To the advanced reader, they're almost one and the same. But to the beginner, they're not at all there. They don't know that A is A, 
And they don't know that when you say cat, you're saying cat. That doesn't come naturally to anybody until they start to become a reader. The code unlocks this ability to perceive those sounds. So again, if we could just start all of our kids with building words, really simple words, put some letter sound tiles on a board or on the table, and let's build the word map. What do you hear at the beginning of map? And hope to, hope to draw out that they hear m. And then that's the phonemic part. Then which phonics, I wouldn't use this term with them, but for us, which phonics piece of knowledge do they need to know to be able to attach that m to the little squiggle there that's the letter M? So they pull down that mm and say mm. And what do you hear next in the word? Did I use the word map or mop? Map, okay. What do you hear next in the word map? And you try to draw their attention to the phonemic properties of map that the second sound is ah. Now, which one of these little spellings is ah? Okay, it's this one. And they pull down the A and they say ah. So they build a word or two like that. And this is like, aha, this is how our code works. They're discovering what they call researchers call the alphabetic principle, that our written language is code for sounds. And it can happen that easily with a three, four, or five-year-old with that type of activity. And after they have a few of these letter sounds, M, A, S, P, T, then they go, oh, you have sat. Let's change it to sit. Let's change it to sit. Let's change it to lip and lap. And that is like um, electricity for their brain. It just uh, charges everything up and helps them make these connections. That's paired contrast, having to just decide what's different from this to that. That really tunes them into the nuances that in the traditional balanced literacy classroom, they're told to overlook. And this is really getting into the nitty-gritty. But the nitty-gritty doesn't have to detract from the beauty of, of language because you quickly get into text. So what you were just saying gave me a light, lightning flash because something I learned from your site was about the difference between continuant and stop consonants. And in the activity, you were you were carefully choosing which consonants you were introducing. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, when you have an absolute beginner, it could be a two-year-old, well, probably three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, maybe even a six-year-old that hasn't really been introduced to reading. It's easier to perceive the sounds, to have the phonemic awareness ability to separate something if the first letter or the first sound is a continuous sound. So that would be a sound like mm, that you can just keep holding or the letter P you cannot keep holding it. That's called a stop consonant. So I'm you just can say it once. So pat um, is harder for the absolute beginner to unglue than mat. So if you notice the differences between continuant consonants, mm, mm, s, r, versus stop consonants, then that will help you with a real beginner, particularly at the beginning of a word. Because it's the first thing that's hard for a beginner is they don't get the phonemic awareness. They don't get that cat is actually made up of several sounds. It's just cat to them. So you're drawing their attention to that. And if you elongate and exaggerate that mat, then they're more likely to say, oh, I hear that beginning part. That's a mm. And that gets you on the road to discovering the alphabetic principle and getting those necessary three skills that, uh, that all kids need to get started in sound-based decoding so they can start to self-teach themselves more and more about the code and about our written language. It sounds to me like that would have such high value in the transfer to writing so that as they're writing, they're able to go mm, and make the M while they're holding that sound and then the A ah for the A and the P. For the P and there, I remember with my son who was dysgraphic, he was instructed to actually be saying the sounds as he was writing them. Unfortunately, he was so brilliant with such a good memory. He could, he learned to read the youngest of my five kids 
Uh, but he was memorizing the shapes of words. So I didn't know he wasn't using this decoding method because he learned a totally different way, correct? And so the remediation was to actually slow down, say the sounds, and we did a lot of nonsense words so that he couldn't, quote, cheat and use the word that he had memorized the correct spelling of. Um, But using that... um, letter to handwriting rather than sound to handwriting was slowing him down. And that's what made it so laborious. He had to keep consulting a picture in his mind instead of letting the sound guide his handwriting. And so this was, we started doing that at about age 11. So it was quite a ways in because I I couldn't detect it because he was actually good at reading. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to throw that out as well, that this sound production along with the letter writing is equally helpful for writing, not just reading. It's so true. Um, with Reading Simplified, we only teach a handful of word work activities and switch it, which Melissa brought up is one of them and, and read it and sort it. And the fourth one that's pivotal, and we do it in almost every lesson is called write it. And it's simply just dictation and accept that it's really important for the child to say the sounds. And that means that if it's a two letter or three letter for the word light, the child's going to say, oh, and then she's going to say, I, the whole time he writes I-G-H, and then he's going to say, T. and that is connecting that, how those sounds and symbols line up. Yep. Oh, that's beautiful. I noticed that you um, have the kids using physical letter tiles rather than having this be an activity on a screen. And I know that there's starting to be some emerging data on, as readers, we might retain things differently when we read in in print versus on screen. Um, So I'm just wondering about how that um, factors into your approach. Um, I try to get as much um, book time with real books and as much writing time with real hands and fingers <laughs> as possible. Uh, on the other hand, for the earliest kids, our build it and switch it activity, we don't actually have them write those letters simply because they might not be able to, but they can still access the code. So we use that as a scaffold for a short season to get them into the stage where they're going to be more likely to write it. And so switch it, which you showed or you mentioned earlier, like, you know, change flash to nonsense word flish. You could do it with letter sound tiles where you have an F on one, an L on one, an A on one, and an SH on one tile. But as soon as kids are able to get the concept and their their handwriting is not a massive slowdown, then we would have them do the same activity on dry erase. Mm. They write out the word help, and then let's change help to held, and they erase the p, and they've put in a d. So because we actually know that learning letter sounds um, is facilitated the most by writing them. Even Mm. typing or moving letter sound cards is not as effective to learning and learning them as the actual motor production of them. And if you can get fluent with writing all of your letters and writing words, that also helps you become more fluent with reading. I was just going to say, I always felt like uh, dry erase boards were uh, like my secret superpower or weapon, (laughs) super tool. Um, Because kids get, it erases the perfectionism. It's just, you can easily swipe it away and do it over. And when they're writing like with pencil or pen, like my kids were so, some of my kids are still scared of pen <laughs> um, because it's permanent. Um, so I think that using those dry erase there's, boards is there's a brilliant some fun. Piece. Somehow there's some fun to it too. I'm not really sure what it is, but it seems to be universal and, and it can cross many different age boundaries. So it is a trick that we use up our sleeve, um, trick up our sleeve for um, getting kids to enjoy the the early stages of which might be feel like hard work for them. I also feel that way about clipboards. So if you do <laughs> want to use paper, just love- <laughs> stick them on a clipboard and stick them in the corner of a couch and they're much more likely to use a pen or a pencil on that sheet of paper. Uh, last question for you from me. Do you have feelings about invented spelling when kids are learning to write? Like, they're guessing, they're using the phonemic awareness they have. And I feel like there's um, a residue from public school training that if you don't spell it right, you really need to be held accountable or you'll never learn to spell it. 
My personal perspective is that that's not accurate, that actually when a child is learning to write, they use as much of their phonemic awareness as they have. They put that into their writing and over time, their own reading and engagement will self-correct. But at the beginning, they're just like, it's like being a toddler learning to speak. You're going to blah, 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 blah. And then eventually you've got other words available. Yeah. You don't, you don't um, stop listening to your toddler because they're not talking complete sentences. It's actually a really good analogy. I think I can't think of it's it's very similar and I think the problem that people reacting or re- overreacting against an approach where in a maybe in a public school situation um children are encouraged to do their spelling based on what they hear and then it's never checked. So we it's not that we're saying let kids do willy-nilly for 3 years. And then they come into the end of third grade and they can't spell set. No, there's a, there's a w- way different approach to it. Kind of like we talked about earlier. Phonics doesn't have to be this painful, draconian experience. So when they're young and when they're just learning, then I actually expect them to, in the first several weeks or months, they should be spelling almost everything that is predictable with a short vowel accurately. If they write flash is F-A-S-H, I'll say, well, you can figure this out. You're missing something because you have fash and we need to turn it into flash. But if they get to the word boat and they write B-O-W-T, that's actually pretty good depending on where they are. Yes, that is the O sound and that is an O. This is not the way we spell the O in boat. Over here, let me write the O in boat over here. This is O. This is how we fix that to make it look like the O in text. So it's back to the earlier part about, you know, it's so important for the the parent or the teacher to give feedback when the student's making oral reading errors. Just as much it's important to give feedback for certain types of errors. Um, Up to a point, you know, if I have a beginning five-year-old and they want to write a superhero's name and, and they've written like 20 words and it's been exhausting, I might have fixed help them fix the word cat and flash, but I'm just going to let a few things go because there's no need to nitpick over everything that's not really their developmental timing. Agreed. Um, that is, that's very much how I see it. I also think it's really valuable for kids to go back and reread their own writing and let them notice uh, <laughs> as the eye of an editor yes, rather than like waiting that. for the parent to come in, have the child go back. One of the things I used to do with my kids, and I'll share this for those listening, when they would free write, they would get something out. The first thing they would do is reread it just for the pleasure of reading. Oh, you produce these six lines during our free writing time. That's amazing. And then I would say, are you happy with all your spelling choices? Because they might be. This might actually give me good information that this is as much as they know. But what would happen when they went back is sometimes because they are using their reading mind now, not their writing mind, and they're in this other mental state, they recognize a misspelling and they might be capable of correcting it, but they might only be capable of identifying it. But that's the beginning of that process of learning it. And um, and then sometimes if they miss them, if they look through, I'm, I'm happy with all of them and I know there's three errors, I would put a little check mark in the margin for the line. And I'd say, take another look at this one I love line. that, yes. Go look and see now. And then if they still don't get it, I put a little squiggle under the word and I say, now let's just have you look at this one word. So we're sort of narrowing the focus, but we're giving them maximum opportunity to use the skills they have. And then if they still don't see it, it's a chance to really talk about that word, teach it again, compare it to the original like that. We use the same principle when we're teaching reading, that we try as a teacher to give the least amount of feedback that's necessary for the child to be successful on his own. Awesome. Yes. I think it's really powerful. I love that. Reversible. <laughs> well, this reading has and been... Writing. Yes. They're, well, they, they are hand in hand. They hold hands like those two <laughs> vowels that go walking. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Marnie, this has just been phenomenal. How can our audience contact you if they want more help from you? We have a lot of complimentary resources and videos at readingsimplified.com. And I'd be happy to take an email um, at marnie 
at readingsimplified.com. My first name is M-A-R-N-I-E. And I encourage folks to go to our site and look for that switch it activity. Give it a try. It should take about five or seven minutes to play around with your child. And you will, um, they'll probably enjoy it. And you will probably see some things that you either surprise you um, that they are lacking, or maybe they're more capable than you thought. Either way, it could unlock some some ideas for the next stages. That's fantastic. We'll definitely put all that in the show notes. Any last thoughts, Lissa? No, but I loved this. Thank you so much, Marty. Well, I really appreciate y'all's ideas and enthusiasm. It's been fun. I really enjoyed having Marnie on the show today, and I know Melissa did as well. So many of you reach out to me with concerns about your kids. Maybe they're not reading at the rate that you expected they would, or you've had four or five kids who know how to read well, but for some reason, this other child just isn't catching on. I just wanted to give you encouragement to stay the course, to try some of these phonemic awareness methods to go slow, to go fast. Remember, a child's ability to concentrate is age plus one minute. So if you've got an eight or nine-year-old who's struggling with reading, don't take it more than nine or 10 minutes at a time. Try not to show your panic. Give your child the sense that you see their effort and that you believe that they can. And I would recommend encouraging your child to spend some time alone each day practicing without the pressure of the adult gaze. Sometimes kids just can't perform. They're having a little crisis of performance anxiety and our sitting there waiting for them to sound out the word feels like pressure. If they can go to the other room, spend a little time sounding out on their own and then come back and read to you, you may start to see more progress. Thanks today for coming and joining us. I hope you will check out Marnie Ginsburg's Reading Simplified website. I know those activities are going to be such a welcome change of pace for so many of you. Hey, everyone. It's Natalie with the Brave Writer team here again with another five-star review. And today's comes from Gracie Bear 2213 Never disappoints. Julie has built an amazing and inspiring educational and mothering brand. Her podcast is always heartfelt and passionate. Her advice is never condescending. She really does want us and our kids to succeed. Listening to this podcast always picks me up when I'm down and inspires me when I feel I am at the end of my rope. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to The Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you.